Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment, equality and fun. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney lockdown. And this week we have a guest who I know very well because he has taught me a lesson or two. No, not that kind of lesson. His name is John Mickler and he's an associate professor at Sydney University who was one of my master's lecturers in international relations. John is joining us today to talk about the world of academia, corpo capitalism and power. Don't worry, we're going to break things down. But before we meet John, we're going to kick off with a tune called Zion Dance Party from the Matrix 2 soundtrack. And this is the Aphrodite remix. Why? You'll find out very soon.
John, welcome to Feminist Fridays. Oh, thanks for having me, Sarah. It's always a pleasure to chat to you. <laughs> so I thought I'd start by asking where you grew up and what some of your early influences were. Oh, well, I, I grew up in uh, Ashfield, which is a uh, oh suburb gosh. of... Yeah, it's a suburb of Sydney. Um, uh, not a very not not a very exciting one. People think of Sydney and they they think of uh, places like Bondi and you know down on the harbour. This is a, a suburb in the inner west uh, for for people who don't know. And when I was growing up there in the seventies uh, and eighties, it was a very Italian area. There was a, there were a lot of Italian uh, immigrant families who lived there. So. Most of the people I went to, to school with as a kid uh, spoke Italian, and I thought I was unusual because we spoke English at home. So it was a very multicultural area in that sense. And, um, and actually, my, my, my household itself was, uh, my father was a, uh, a refugee who'd come to Australia um, after World War II. And, and my mother was, uh, was from the northeast of England and uh, from a very working class Catholic family come to Australia for a bit of an adventure and, and stayed here. Um, and I didn't mention it, but my father was Jewish as well. So Jewish and Catholic, um, you know, European and, and, and British and, and in a, an Italian kind of area. So it was a very, very multicultural kind of um, uh, area and, and background uh, to, to grow up with. And I, I think what it left me feeling was like very um, open minded grounded in a very sort of working class kind of reality, but, but, but also with many sort of cosmopolitan kind of influences around me. Mm. Guess what? I grew up in my high school years in Croydon. So I oh. know Ashfield so well. I used to yeah. do all my swimming training at Ashfield Pool. When well, I that's, was where I, that's where I learned to swim. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, my parents just threw me in the water there and said, you will do swimming training from a very early age. So um, I've walked around Ashfield plenty of times. I know it very well. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. Being um, thrown in the water, like my, my, my swimming teacher there was Mr. Webster. Oh, and, oh my uh, gosh, no way. He was my swimming teacher. <laughs> a small world. He actually picked me up one day and threw me into the, into the Olympic pool. And yes. as I was drowning, he just said, you're okay, Jono. Breathe and bubble, breathe and bubble. He said that <laughs> he, he would thing. do that. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, he would do that. He was he was like to me, no pain, no gain, Tomo. He called me Tomo, um, my, you know, from my former surname. So Mr. Webster, there you go. What a legend. He, yeah. The legend lives on. It does. <laughs> so before we talk about your current work as a very important, busy academic at Sydney Uni, I understand that you had a previous career before the world of academia lured you. Can you tell us a bit about that and why you decided to change course? Oh, look, I mean, um, when, I, when I finished high school, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do and no one in my family had been to university, so so university was a bit of an adventure, but I also needed a job. And um, I managed to get one with with Deloitte's as a as a trainee auditor, as, as a, wow. a trainee accountant, actually. Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't made for accountancy. I didn't fit in very well. I, I was told I had an attitude problem. Uh, and 
and uh, sacked after two years. Um, but I, but I, I liked university, and so I, I switched from doing something that just made money, like accountancy, to focusing more on economics because I was I was very left wing. Um, I was worried about who got what and how they got it, why there was so much wealth, uh, and and yet you know for some and like for others, a lot of hard work that didn't seem to produce the same rewards. Um, and then I got a bit disillusioned as as I went, you know, the further I went into studying economics, because rather than those big questions, it became a lot of mathematical models um, mm-hmm. and questions of efficiency and things like that. So, yeah, you know, I, 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 had, I had some trouble with economics after doing accountancy. But then I, I, I graduated and um, I got a job in the Commonwealth Public Service and moved to Canberra. And again, that was about getting a job, too, in a way. I kind of, kind of drifted along in the sense that. That was the end of the 1980s and Australia was in a recession. And if you could get a job, that was a good thing. And um, so I took it, moved down to Canberra and I was in the industry department, but I ended up working on the film, television, music and what were known at the time as multimedia industries. And of course, that became tech and online. And um, so I had a great time working in the public service, but um then working on film and TV, I ended up moving back to Sydney and working for the Australian Broadcasting Authority, which was wow. the broadcasting regulator. And then um, after doing some postgraduate study, I, I worked again in the public service for, for AusAid, so the Australian Aid Program. Yeah. Basically, through a process of elimination, working out what I didn't like rather than what I did like, I, I then ended up basically with academia in the sense that um, having been in the public service for quite a while and enjoying my work there, going back to university, the experience of doing that, I realised that I really enjoyed study mm-hmm. and I was given the opportunity to do some teaching and I and I really enjoyed that as well. So I decided to do a PhD and the rest is kind of history. That, that led to me becoming an academic. I found I, I really enjoyed the teaching and found it really rewarding. The The research and the writing was like a hobby. Yeah. And I thought, wow, if you can do this for a job, this this seems like a pretty good gig. And um, I was lucky enough to get a permanent position. So I've been doing that for the last uh, 15 to 20 years now. For people out there who might not be familiar with the world of academia, what does an associate professor do? Can you tell us a bit about a day in the life of John Meekler? Sure. Um, well, obviously, when when semester is on, a lot of time is taken up with teaching. So I spend quite a lot of my week preparing for teaching, preparing lectures and and, and notes for tutorials and seminars, and then and then doing the teaching. Um, so I'm either preparing for it or I'm doing it when I'm face to face, or as it turns out at the moment, Zoom to Zoom with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm not doing that, it's reading and research and and writing. Um, so that's an interesting thing. Often students will say when you get to the end of the semester, enjoy your holidays. And it's like, I'm not on holiday. I, I spend about probably 40% of my time teaching and about 40% doing research and, and writing. Um, increasingly, another thing I've got to say that happens in the university system, I find I'm doing more and more administration, which is pretty boring, pretty soul-destroying, <laughs> but that seems to be part of the job of working at a very large organisation. But more happily, I'm, I'm doing increasing, increasing amounts of supervision. So I've got PhD students, honours students, uh, master students who are doing, doing research. And, and that's very fulfilling as well. It's lovely to, to work with people on their, on their projects. Um, 
put that all together. And, and, and like the funny thing about the job is that it's very flexible in the sense that if you're not actually in a room or on a Zoom at the moment, um, you know, teaching, you've got a lot of flexibility in how you use your time. The danger is if you love what you do, you end up, you end up doing an awful lot of it and just becoming mm-hmm. a bit of a workaholic. So one mm-hmm. of the challenges I find is making sure that, for example, I don't work on weekends. Uh, if necessary, I often work till about two o'clock in the morning. Um, but usually I try to make sure I'm not working more than about 50 hours a week and that I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not working on a Saturday and Sunday. Otherwise, it all tends to wash over and take up your whole life. I can imagine. I just had a thought. I, I'm curious, when you give your lectures, do you rehearse them in advance or are you just, you know, so experienced in giving them that you put, put it together and then just stand up and talk? You know, there's a saying, it's not so much in academia, I guess more in showbiz. And and to some mm. extent, there is an element of that in when you're presenting work or presenting your views. Also, if, if, I'm, if I'm at a conference and presenting my research, the the trick to looking relaxed and as if you're and as if you're doing things off the cuff is to be extremely well prepared. Yeah. Um, so I write copious notes that to, to go with all the slides or any presentation that I'm doing. And I don't necessarily refer to those notes all that much, but just the process of writing them yeah. um, and ordering your thoughts makes it possible for you to actually present something. It's, there's, there's something very focusing about, I mean, I guess you could ask me a question about my opinion on something and, you know, the dangers in being an academic is that you can ramble on for hours and hours and hours until everyone falls asleep, right? Because you've read and you've thought about it a lot. But to present something clearly, in, in other words, to say these are the three things you need to know and from those there's another two things, that takes a lot of preparation. So yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time preparing. Having said that, usually before I, I say anything or I go on, I'm, I'm usually ex- extremely nervous. But if I'm really? prepared, I'm, yeah, yeah, very much. Especially oh. at the beginning of a semester, if you haven't met a group of people and you don't know them yet and they don't know you, you know, how you start off in those first couple of weeks really sets the tone for how things go on from there and the kind of leeway people will give you. So I often feel quite sick before I before I go on. But then I find that once I once I have um, in the moment and having prepared, it's really sort of like, what's the word? What am I trying to say? It's like being in flow. You know, it's a lovely thing to be doing. And you mentioned that you, know, you don't want people to fall asleep in the lecture. Has anyone ever fallen asleep in one of your lectures? Look, if they do, then I know I'm doing something wrong or I'm being a bit boring. And, and, uh, and, then, and then I'll sort of ask people if things are making sense and should I move on. And look, that's one of the problem, problems of not actually being in rooms with people when everyone's on screen and often with their videos turned off. You don't get that kind of feedback. It's yeah. like it's good to see like when people are falling asleep, when they're looking confused, when they're looking offended as well. And then you can stop and ask why. And, um, yeah. you know, that's important. So, you know, I hope yeah, people don't fall asleep all that often. If they do, it's usually not because of me. I'd like to think it's because they've had a big night out or something. I also just wanted to ask about your research interests, because your bio on the Sydney Uni website says that they are the role of transnational economic actors and particularly multinational corporations and the interaction between them and states, international organisations and civil society, and that you take a comparative comparative institutionalist perspective. Okay, so that was a mouthful. 
Can you break that down a bit for us whose heads may be exploding? Is what you research and talk about primarily power relations? It is. But the first thing I think is that I really need to sort of like update what I've got on my website. because That's just awful, isn't it? That's terrible. I wouldn't know what I'd do either if I read that. Um, Transnational economic actors. I think when I thought about that, I was trying to say that I'm interested in multinational corporations in big companies and the power that they have. But I was also trying to get a sense of, you know, being interested in not just the power that corporations wield, but also how they do in the networks they control, you know, the other companies they subcontract, and then also the organizations that they belong to, business associations. All right. Rather than writing all of that out, you get transnational economic actors. But fundamentally, I'm interested in corporate power. And, yeah. and the comparative perspective, I'm also interested in the way in which corporations wield power in different environments and in different territories. So I'm interested in capitalism, but I'm not a hardliner. I'm not like, you know pro-capitalist, anti-capitalist. I'm not like, you know, particularly joining any cheer squad. I'm interested in the way in which capitalism varies between countries. So, okay, mm. corporate power and how it's exercised differently in, say, Europe versus North America, in East Asia versus, well, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. In other words, I'm interested in the variations in capitalism and corporate power and how it's expressed. So. Mm. That's, that's really what I'm about in my research. So I've looked at uh, climate change, online gambling, uh, corporate tax avoidance, you know, a range of issues for, you know, through the lens of like different varieties of capitalism and the role played by different kinds of corporations in different sectors. Now let's talk about your forthcoming book, Capitalism for All, um, which you've written with Neil Harrison. I've read a little bit about it, and I understand you argue that capitalism has lost its glamour. So when we live in a world where popular culture is all about money, success, fame and glamour, why do you think this is? What makes you think that capitalism has fallen from grace? I mean, it, because if you say, well, if I said um, that I liked capitalism, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would be rolling their eyes or, or saying like, how can you say that? Because what, whereas it should be about entrepreneurialism and individual freedoms, uh, mm. about, you know, working for a better life and enjoying the rewards of your work. Uh, it should be about economic development. Well, increasingly, if you talk about capitalism, what people start to think is like people being exploited, inequality, low pay, environmental degradation, and, and maybe a sort of shallow celebration of ephemeral joys by a small elite, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when I say something like that, you, you, the first thing you're going to start thinking is like, okay, well, politically, where's this guy coming from? He, he sounds like a Marxist, doesn't he? Because he's attacking capitalism. The thing is, like, you know, I said earlier, you know, when I was younger, I was more left wing, but like I've changed my views, but I'm still worried about power and power relations. And I think it's true to say that increasingly I've come to regard myself as being, you know, very liberal. I'm about individual freedoms, individual rights, individual human rights, the importance mm -hmm. of protecting those freedoms. That's what I think the nation state should do or my, my government should do. And, and it seems like that's what nation states had as a sort of like standard ideological position post-World War II. 
for a long time. But that's not the world we live in anymore. We live in a world of very large corporations rather than free markets, uh, of trade wars between major powers like the US and China, but also between China and Australia, rising, rising nationalism, uh, like, you know, you can see this in, in, in the, you know, the Brexit vote in the UK, the election of Donald Trump in the United States, populist politics in Europe. Pe people are even sort of like looking at democracy as a concept with some disdain. So it's almost like democracy as well as capitalism have fallen out of favour. And Neil and I found, as we talked about this, that um, we sort of regard ourselves as pretty middle of the road, you know, in terms of our attitudes. But we were starting to sound like, you know, almost like revolutionaries, really sort of like, you know, alternative for espousing fairly standard kind of liberal views. And so we thought, that's interesting. We should write a book about that. Because we're told all the time, you know, we live in a liberal world order or that's what we're in danger of losing or that's what has to be protected. And we sort of looked around us and thought, like, I don't know, our society seemed to be getting less and less liberal. And the world order doesn't seem to be about freedoms. It seems to be about control. It's also interesting that you mentioned that people are sort of getting a bit, not over, but questioning democracy because I have had more than I expected conversations with people around in different places around the world, Australia, France, Europe, other parts of Europe, America, where people just sort of are disillusioned even with the, the right to vote. And I just don't compute that. To me, it's just like it's, it's so important. But I think democracy works when everyone actually makes it work. Otherwise, it's sort of left into the hands of the people, like big believers like myself, who think that it's really important that everyone votes and that um, the system is upheld in the way it was supposed to be. It's concerning though, isn't it? I mean, because yeah. like I, I tend to think, you know, you sort of hear this, for example, like, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump. I mean, there's a range of, range of views about him, but one, you know, but the, one of the things that you hear about politics in, in the United States, for example, is you know that there's there's this real uh, you know movement of of basically people who what Hillary Clinton called a basket of deplorables you know they're all very uneducated uh, very racist uh, usually male uh, probably white uh, working class or unemployed and it's like look that 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 can't be true because the election was so close you know recently it can't be that it's just like a a small, you know, minority of backward, crazy, uninformed people. There's, there's a real sort of disaffection with the choices that people are being offered, and I, and I think that explains Brexit as well. There's, there's a, and and also, you know, populist nationalism. There's a feeling that it doesn't matter who you vote for. What you're going to get is a government that is big and very active, but not for you as a citizen, but for big business and certain vested interests. In other words, rather than government, you know, supporting liberal freedoms and rights of citizens and of society, instead you've got, you know, governments that are actually serving interests other than those of the people who vote for them. So I, I, I think I can understand why there's a disaffection, but it's really, really worrying. So what do you think then we can do to maybe turn this disaffection around? Or what do you think needs to change. Um, I mean, my, I guess my personal perspective would be that I'm a big believer in the, in 
the fact that I think everyone has power, inherent power. You're born with a voice. You're born with equal rights and it's up to you to use them. So I sort of feel like it's everyone's responsibility to to change the system if we're, if we're not happy with this shift to the right or whatever it is. But I'm interested in your, your take because this is about you, not me. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I mean, personally, like I'm someone who sits in an ivory tower and has big thoughts and writes about them and teaches about them. So I'm not sure that I'm that, 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 the, that I'm changing the world myself. But, um, the, you know, in writing a book like this, to the extent that anybody reads it, what, what we're trying to do is speak, speak truth to power, you know, to say, mm. like, don't believe the wool that's being pulled over your eyes, you know, that somehow you should be able to make choices and whatever. You, you've got choices that are constrained uh and and also what we're saying is like you know don't believe the mantra this originally margaret thatcher said this in the 80s that there is no alternative to the free market you know and we're often told this kind of thing look you might want other things but this is what we've got to do because globalization demands it or the economy demands it or you know you can't have any alternative or any alternative view to you know the status quo that's a very repressive kind of thing to say there's always an alternative Mm. And you've got to think about what those alternatives are. Mm. And so when you start thinking about the way the world actually is, rather than how you're told it is, you start to see those alternatives. So, for example, you know, there's a great big debate that's had about free trade. You know, isn't free trade good? Or you don't like free trade. Why? Do you want trade to be controlled? You know, the reality is the trade's already controlled. The majority of trade statistics are made up like about 60, 70 or 80 percent, depending on how you measure it and where and in between which countries, is actually intra-firm trade. In other words, it's things that are being produced, and I'm just talking about manufacturing here, things that are being produced in global supply chains by companies contracting out to other companies in other countries who in turn subcontract to, to, to suppliers to them. Um, I can give you an example of this. Uh, if you think about Apple products, Apple phones, iPads, oh, yes, yeah. Apple, Apple makes nothing. It, it designs products and then it gets them made in China. So yeah. when China is making an Apple iPhone or workers in China are making that and then it's exported from China, is that an export of Chinese products or is it an export of Apple products? And if Apple's shareholders are mostly in North America and that's where the intellectual property is and that's where the money goes, that's really a, a American exports or let's just say, never mind American, it's Apple's exports, right? If that's the case, then every free trade agreement is to some extent a nail in the coffin of free trade because it's ensuring that companies like Apple, and I shouldn't just single them out, any multinational corporation you can think of that does this kind of thing, contracting out its production offshore to workers in other countries. I mean, basically, this is about these large non-state actors getting more and more and more control. Okay, why would we give them more control? Why wouldn't we be talking about trade on the basis of environmental standards, labor standards, other kind of standards, you know, except that the trade is no longer free and it's no longer between countries, it's within corporates, corporate global supply chains. Then it's about time we need to make some rules about how that happens to make it better. So it's about changing the focus of the debate, you know? Mm. 
You know, you're telling me this as I'm sitting here looking at my Apple laptop and my iPhone and... <laughs> no choice, Sarah. It's like, it's, you shouldn't feel bad. You see, this is the thing. You, this is another thing about transferring the blame to you, you know, saying you need to make other choices. What's wrong with you? Why do you have these products when you know about, you know, stuff like this? It's like, well, if you didn't have an Apple product, you'd have a Samsung product maybe. Yeah. Or if it's not just those brands, you're either going to be, you know, in the in the Android Google or Alphabet world, or you're going to be in the Apple world for all your apps and your software, you don't really have a choice. You know, this is like the infrastructure of the 21st century. So it needs to be regulated as such. Mm. Yes, interesting stuff. I, I mean, I don't think I'll ever be lured away from Apple. I've, it's basically, I've been, I've grown up with it. So um, I, I think I'll be um, following its path for a while now. So I wanted to just ask also about um, the fact that you have been called a Marxist and Neil's been called a communist or worried about being called a communist. Are you a red under the bed? No. Why do, you, <laughs> why do you think people were perceiving you this way? Because if people are told um, we live in a liberal world or order, um, yes. we've had globalisation, it's liberal or it's neoliberal. Um, globalization and the global economy is all about free trade. Um, and free trade leads to economic development. And you want development, don't you? Okay, so when you start getting critical about these concepts, people start to think, hang on, you, you, don't, you don't like the liberal world order? Uh, you don't like free trade? Um, you don't want countries to develop economically by economically liberalizing. And it's like, you know, you, you, you basically the sort of the, the language and the terminology and the labels, if you start attacking them in the sense of being critical about what's going on, people think that you mustn't like that. But what I'm actually saying is that the trade is not liberal and the freedoms are not liberal. And there's an awful lot of control that's going on. And people have been sort of like, you know, they've been, they've been, if you like, uh, convinced, they've been argued into thinking that like, they should believe that the label written on the box is what's actually in it. And, um, and I'm basically saying like, no, the label doesn't fit what's going on. But some people don't see that, or they don't hear it, they just hear you being critical. And they think like, oh, you must be radical, you know, whereas mm -hmm. I just want, I, I, I want what the label says, you know, I want what's on the box. <laughs> and that's that's basically what i'm saying i yeah i want liberal globalization yes i want liberal free trade give it to me i want choices in markets i would love to have some but i don't mm. feel like i've got it that's mm. that's what really what i'm saying but it's not necessarily what people hear yeah no i can i can relate to that i think um yes when you kind of consider i guess the amount of of power that you know the corporations have or that or you know for example tech platforms have and you start to kind of question and say well why should this particular platform have more people on it than any country in the world and have this much power and i like to just dig dig deeper and ask why what what are the alternatives as well so, I mean, yeah, it's like, for example, we could talk about Facebook and, and it's not just Facebook, everything, you know, all the other apps and the platforms they, they own and control um, or yeah. a company like Google. I mean, like, they're, they're, they're terrific. I mean, yeah, I, I'm on Facebook and, and I use, you know, and I use its other platforms and I go to Google and, it, and it's great. 
But um, but then I also want to attack some of the things that those very large and powerful organisations do. So, for example, um, when there's a decision made to take, um, I don't know, if offensive material off Facebook, I'm thinking like, yeah, no, I'm glad about that. I, I don't want offensive material to be there. Uh, but then you end up getting wrapped up in an argument about free speech. Is this an mm -hmm. attack on free speech or not? It's like it's not about free speech. It's 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 about on what basis speech should be free mm. and on what basis should what people are, are saying be regulated. Because it's not all right to spread lies and say racist or, or horrible things about individuals or groups of people. But it's reasonable to sort of ask the question, like, say, Facebook is removing content, to ask, hang on, what's the accountability around that? What's the transparency as to the process? Who's involved in the decision making? What evidence do they use? And that's not very clear. So I think I maybe want some governance around that that's not just purely in the realm of Facebook. Okay, so if I get crit critical like that, I'm not saying Facebook needs to be stomped all over and, and ripped apart and that kind of thing, but I'm, I'm worried about how that's regulated and who's going to be doing it. Um, saying this and expressing these concerns don't necessarily make you, say, a Marxist or radical or red, but, you know, it can be spun by certain vested interests in that kind of way to make it look as if, that's what you're doing. I mean, you know, if there's time to expand on this, thinking about, you know, Facebook, for example, uh, saying that uh, negotiating in good faith with content providers in Australia to provide them some kind of compensation, some remuneration for the news that's provided to people through Facebook and its platforms. Facebook said this was a terrible attack on free speech. Speech should be free. And then what they did was they shut down all access <laughs> to that content to the Australian people for I think about a week, wasn't it, last year? But like the only the only organization, the only group that attacked free speech was Facebook. But they made it look as if like the government was doing that. So, you know, again, you've got to get around the labels and the debates and think like, hang on, who's who's making these arguments and why are they doing it? No, I think it's it's interesting uh, with Facebook and other tech platforms, um, the issue of governance because there is things like freedom of speech. Um, there's also, the, for me, a big question is who's actually doing the content moderation? How much of it is monitored by algorithm? How much of it is monitored by people? And then when it comes to the people, where are they from? What training have they had around things like diversity and inclusion? Um, it's, you know, it is... There's very little uh, information available about that at the moment. And I've noticed that Instagram's coming out a lot more lately trying to say, here's the truth about our algorithms. But they're not necessarily going, they're talking about how the algorithms work, sure, but who made the algorithm? What were they, what was, you know, what was their kind of perception of the world? What was their worldview? Um, so hmm, now I'm kind of starting to get into like simulation, simulation theory. Are we just all living in a big simulated world? That's probably a topic for another podcast. <laughs> no, it sounds like the Matrix, Sarah. It sounds like the Matrix. Well, you know, we do have that in common. We are both Matrix nerds. And I wanted to ask, what is your favourite Matrix line and why? 
I have a line that is it's my favorite, but I have to give you the 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 speech that it's contained in to tell you why I love it. It's it's when Morpheus says to Neo, you know, it's not the blue pill, red pill, but it's a it's that conversation. It's yeah. when he says, Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. And this is the line I love. Like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then Neo answers, it's the Matrix. And I yes. love it. There's a splinter in your mind driving you mad. And it's like you're looking at things and you think like, it's not quite right. No, I'm being told this, but it doesn't quite look like that. Why doesn't it look like that? What's wrong with it? You know, and that's, um, you know, it's sort of like the, the classic line about critical thinking. It's what you just said. It's like, hang on, who's making this argument? Why are they making it? What are their interests? They're revealing stuff to me, but they're not quite revealing it. What's what's missing from what they're revealing? What do I need to assume to to believe them and agree with them? And and what might be a more plausible explanation if that's not correct? And where's the evidence? So I love it. You know, it's a classic yeah. movie. So many classic lines in it. So I did also wanted to ask about what it's like being a lecturer because these are strange times, and. I am curious as to what you notice about young people in today's digital native age. Do you think that there are a lot of Greta Thunbergs out there who are motivated to create change? Yes. I actually, that's, that's a lovely way of putting it. I, I love this generation. I really do. Um, my undergraduate students in particular, uh, the, the last two or three years I've had some of the most wonderful experiences in in class that you know since I've started teaching at university they're they're informed um they want change and they're constructive you know they they're about solutions rather than enormous ideological raves do you know what i mean yeah and and and, and so they really they're really wanting to do things that are constructive that are related to evidence about the world they see around them and they know about stuff, you know? Um, and it's a, there is a change. I remember like about 20 years ago when I first started teaching at uni, it was a little bit depressing in the sense that young people, you know, you'd point out some of the problems, the way things are, and they'd go like, oh yeah, but that's kind of things are how, how they are, just kind of get with the program. Or if they weren't that, they were incredibly radical and wanting to overturn everything. And it used mm -hmm. to be a bit, you know, annoying in the sense of like, isn't there anywhere in between, in the middle, like how you could just do something constructive rather than throw it all, all, all out or just accept things the way they are? Mm. And, and then about 10 years ago, after the financial crisis, um, I really noticed in classes people getting really depressed. Uh, we'd get about four or five weeks in and you'd be sort of like, you know, peeling back the layers of the onion to show the power relations that are going on or you know, sort of, you know, various interpretations of them. And people would start like sinking into their into their hands, you know, and looking down at their desks. And, and when you ask them, you know, what, what's going on? You all look very depressed. And they were like, oh, it's just all so sad and and change is impossible. And, and the more I know about it, the sadder I get. And I used to get really, you know, not quite angry, but I used to say, oh, come on, that's not good enough. Let's fix it. Let's be about solutions. And they'd be, oh, well, what do you think well what can we do this kind of thing but there's been a real change since then there's a lot of ideas in the room and a lot of constructive discussion which is wonderful to see 
All right. So as this is a feminist segment, how has feminism been part of your journey? And just to be clear, I'm an intersectional feminist. So I believe feminism is about equality for all and not just women's rights. Well, strength to your arms, Sarah. I, I, I tend to think so as well. Um, and it, it, has, it hasn't been a very feminist segment so far, but, but, um, but you know, to, I, I can tell you, all right, what, how do I think about feminism? Look, I'm not a very, I'm not a very manly man. Um, in other discussions we've had, I think I told you uh, at one stage, one of my daughters, when she was very young, was staring at me across the across the, the breakfast table and she said, I've worked out what you are. And I said, with some trepidation, oh, yes, what, what am I? And she said, you're a gay straight man. And um, and that made me laugh. Um, and I like the way that she sort of just like mixed all the terms around because, you know, it, it seems to me, um, I mean, like I was born in the late 60s, so I've been around for a while, but I remember the the feminist movement as it was and also the gay rights movement and, and movements around it. And the whole idea of them was like, it, it didn't matter what you were, it, what mattered was who you were. So you can see like the roots of my liberalism coming out in this, yeah? So rather than saying you were gay or you were straight, male or female or trans or whatever, that didn't matter. The point was you can do the job as well as anybody else. You can do whatever you do as well as any as well as well as anyone else. You aren't worth any more or less than anyone because of some kind of orientation or gender or label that's put on you. You're you. But I think somehow along the way, there's you know people have kind of got lost. I really noticed about twenty or so years ago. First of all, watching comedians who would come out and say things like, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm gay, you know, this kind of thing. And I'm sort of watching it thinking like, really, do you, do you need to declare that? Like, is that a thing again? Like, I thought we got past all of that. And then all this division up, you know, to sort of like people were LGBTQI and any other letter of the alphabet you could you could think of. And some activists starting to sort of like having a, a letter and pretty much a box to put anybody in, depending upon their gender and their orientation. Whereas it would be nice if everybody was getting out of their boxes. So yeah. one of the reasons why I agree with you and what you were saying is like, you know, feminism shouldn't just be a thing for women. Uh, it shouldn't be about whether you're, you know, straight or gay or bi or anywhere in between. Um, and yet it seems like there's an awful lot of people having been put back in their boxes and now they're all in their boxes and yelling at each other from them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of like yeah. identity politics. And I think it's a real retrograde step. It's a real step backwards. It's it's almost like I feel we're back in 1985 again, where it's <laughs> like, you know, we, we seem to sort of have got had got past all of that and somehow we've gone back. And um, yeah. yeah, I can. I guess we could discuss some of the reasons for that. I don't know if there's time, but it's a bit, a bit like people stressing, you know, you know, their other aspects of their identity as well. I think it's a bit of a shame, you know. I think that you know, for me, I'm, I'm not really one for labels, so I, I would agree with you there. And you know, when, when you're saying this isn't, hasn't really been a feminist segment, it kind of has because for. In my, you know, understanding the kind of feminism that I've um, studied and worked in, the fact that we, like, all have inherent power 
sort of relates back to our conversation about where power lies. And sure, there might there might be um, entities, corporations, states, entrepreneurs, tech platforms that have potentially more power in one sense, like economic power or financial power or data. But I think um, what I really try and I guess well, what's embedded in me is just that sense that everyone has got some power within them, even even if you, you know, you might not be in, uh, I hate coming up with these terms, like a developed country versus a less economically developed country. Um, you still have a voice, basically. That's what I think maybe that's my interpretation of power as well, is you have a voice, you can still create change. If, you know, if a young girl from Sweden can start climate marches around the world, then I think we can all give it a red-hot go. (laughs) I think that's the thing. I mean, there's a tension in what I've just said as well. Like, I mean, I'm I'm saying this. It could be argued from a position of power. You know, like, why can't everyone just be themselves, yeah? Um, You know, if you start from the position that, say, in certain workplaces, women are underrepresented or there is discrimination against people because of their identity or you know who they are that kind of thing then there's a need for people to organize to sort of claim their rights and 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 demand them um but i just hope that we're on the road to that the way i think we were and 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 i have a feeling that we're not as much anymore and 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 i noticed that like for example when i if i raise a concern like this but what one of the things that i get told is like yeah well you see you're a you're a straight white male and it's like hmm well if you define me as that that's all you allow me to be you know what i mean and then the yeah. problem is if you define yourself in opposition to that then mm. to some extent that's all you allow yourself to be because mm. you're going to stay in that box you know yelling and screaming about being in it rather than out of it whereas what you want to do is to uh, basically break the boxes open so that you can get into other people's worlds and they can get into yours. I know it's a complicated thing, you know, it's not easily done, but but it just worries me this sort of like, you know, as I say, letters for everybody and terms for everybody. And as I say, like, yeah, like a box you can put everybody in. You would hope that's not where we want to end up still being in, say, 10, 20, 30 years' time. So we could probably talk for quite a while, but I should probably wrap up now with my final question, which is where can my listeners find you, follow you and connect with you if they might want to study with you or follow the path to academia? So feel free to plug a website, your books or any social media profiles here. Well, they they can they can buy my my books where all good books are sold, um, including that large multinational corporation Amazon. Um, they can certainly they can certainly find me at the University of Sydney in the uh, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I'm in the Department of Government and International Relations, um, so that's where I'm teaching uh, into the uh, Bachelor of Arts, the Politics and International Relations stream there, and. Uh, and also postgraduate programs like the Master of International Relations. Um, on social media, I'm chronically inactive uh, in, in a professional capacity, I'm afraid. 
and um, and my rather out of date website, as you've pointed out from the terrible description of what I do, that that's also where they can find me. But in all seriousness, they will find other articles and and things that I've written there. And that's also where my books are, too, if they want to have a look. I've got an unusual enough name that if they just put it in, if anyone just puts it into Google, that's usually the first thing that comes up. So I guess to some extent, having a slightly different surname, not first name, uh, serves me well in that regard. Um, so hopefully I'm findable. I think you're findable. I found you pretty easily. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, your, and your new book is coming out at the big beginning of next year is that correct coming out in january yeah called uh yeah uh, capitalism for all uh, realizing its liberal promise and uh it's interesting we originally wanted to make it uh, we call it making capitalism great again but the publisher said that sounds too trumpian and i and i think <laughs> yes. that was a very wise very wise decision because we might have looked like we were part of the donald trump cheer squad which is not what we are at all um so, yes, it's about saying that, like, you know, capitalism can be great. It can be great if it's liberal. So it's a bit of a challenge because people will be saying, like, oh, I thought it was already. But we, we say why it isn't. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And thank you so much for joining us on Feminist Fridays. I'm sure my listeners will be intrigued and will be looking you up online just like I have been. Oh, thanks, Sarah, and thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, that has been another mind-bending episode of Feminist Fridays for this week. But before your head explodes, I'm going to leave you with an on-point track called Power by Kanye, a.k.a. Yeezy. And this is the Enigmix remix. So enjoy, and if you're in the mood for Wonderland, take the red pill this weekend. Let's go lost tonight. You could be my black Kate Moss tonight. Play secretary on the boss tonight. And you don't give a fuck what they all say, right? Awesome, the Christian and Christian Dior. Damn, they don't make them like this anymore. I ask, cause I'm not sure. Do anybody make real shit anymore? Bad when the presence is greatness. Cause right now, that has forsaken us. You should be honored by my lateness. That I would even show up to this fake shit. So go ahead, go nuts, go ape shit. Cause in my pastel on my face shit. Act like you can't tell who made this new gospel, homie. Take six, take this, haters. That don't kill me, can only make me stronger. I need you to hurry up now, cause I can't wait much longer. Plans in that. 
If God put me in your plans and that, I'm tripping this drink, got me saying a lot. But I know that God put you in front of me. So how the hell put you front on me? It's a thousand years, it's only one of me. I'm tripping, I'm caught up in a moment, right? Cause you know even time dying night. So we gon' do everything to kind like. Heard they do anything for a Klondike. Well, I'll do anything for a Klondike. And she'll do anything for the limelight. And we'll do anything when the time's right. Oh, baby, you're making it. Oh, yeah. 